Here at the Think Christian Podcast, we're in no rush to get to Advent. Let's first give spooky season its due. I'm Josh Larson, editor at thinkchristian.net and your host. If there's no such thing as secular, then that means there is religious resonance to be found even, perhaps especially, in the horror genre. This is something we've been arguing annually here on the TC Podcast. So in the tradition of horror franchises that never die, this is a Christian defense of horror for. For this year's edition, Abby Olchessi and Joe George are going to join me to discuss a new fright flick, The Whiplash-Inducing Barbarian, and a horror classic, 1978's Halloween. Now, I'm fascinated enough by this topic that I recently finished writing a book on it, Fear Not a Christian Appreciation of Horror. That's not going to be available until next fall, 2023, but I've been sharing updates and sneak peeks, little excerpts, for those who have joined this email list I put together. So if you want to get in on that, you can sign up at fuller.edu slash fear not. That's fuller.edu slash fear not. John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978, it gets a lot of attention in the book. So I'm eager to talk to Joe and Abby about that one today. As for Barbarian, what can you say about Barbarian? What can't you say about Barbarian? Let's get into it and... Fear not, we won't get into spoilers until the end of our conversation. A pair of hearty souls are with me today, Abby Olchessi and Joe George, both brave fans of the horror genre. Before we get to that, you two, what I do enjoy asking on this annual episode is if there are any costume plans for Halloween this year. Now, Abby, I think in the past, I believe you've mentioned a costume party was a regular thing for you in the before times. Pre-COVID, I don't know if that's the case and if you're getting back to that this year. Oh, yeah. I am actually having my first Halloween party since 2019, which is exciting. <laughs> um, I I'm bet. excited to get back into the swing of things. Costume thoughts for this year. I have, I, I had surgery earlier this year on my arm and I have, you'll be able to see this on the YouTube version, quite a long scar on my arm right now. Okay, um, yes. So I am hoping to take advantage of that and go <laughs> as Ash <laughs> wow. from the Evil Dead movies. Wow. Talk about making the best of a, <laughs> of a situation. Okay. It's, I just, I figured you just got it. You got to take advantage of what you've been given. And uh, I love it. it. It seemed like a good opportunity. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. How about you, Joe? Maybe if you're not dressing up, uh, one of your kids has plans. You can share what's Halloween looking like for the family. I only know for sure one, my youngest son is going to be a werewolf. That's his plan. I don't know Classic. that the olders have yeah, decided. My plan is to dress as the three bouncing heads and spirited away that live with the witch. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, Holy that's the plan cow. right now. So we'll see how I get uh, pull that off. But A deep, ambitious cut. Well, Good luck. <laughs> Good luck with that. That's almost um, always so on in our house. So it's not that deep of a cut around here. But <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> You guys are shaming me. I don't have plans myself. The high schooler, my younger daughter, I think right now is going to go along with her boyfriend as uh, Corpse Bride and Victor Van Dort from oh, the nice. 2005 Tim Burton stop motion film. So yeah, pretty proud of that choice. Uh, I've seen her preparations. It's going to be intense. I hope he can live up to what she has. <laughs> she has planned. So I'm, I'm eager to see how that comes about. All right. So let's take a deep breath. 
and let's talk Barbarian. <laughs> this is a recent release written and directed by Zach Kreger. And if Twitter and Letterboxd are any indication, this was one of the most talked about films of the fall. We're going to get to spoilers. It's somewhat unavoidable with this title. But first, I want to get your general reactions. So, Abby, maybe you can help us and give us a very basic plot setup, how this thing starts, and just tell me in general how you liked it. Sure. It's a little hard to do kind of a brief synopsis on this without getting into like big time spoiler territory, but I'm going to I'm going to try my hardest. So the movie starts off with a young woman, Tess, who arrives for a job interview in Detroit and she has booked an Airbnb for the night. And when she gets to the Airbnb, realizes that the Airbnb has, in fact, been double booked. There's already buddy, already somebody staying in the house. Yeah. This is 476 Barbary, right? Yeah, I'm renting this place. No, I booked it a month ago. Are you sure you have the right place? Yeah. Who am I supposed to do? Why don't you come inside and we'll call these idiots. And that turns out to be a young man named Keith. And they try to work out the best of an awkward situation. Of course, right away, your hackles are kind of raised. We've seen this kind of situation before. She's in prime spot to be taken advantage of. And Keith seems to realize this too, as does Tess. And everybody is very congenial and careful about their interactions with, with each other, which is actually kind of a refreshing start for a movie like this. Like you see Tess locking the doors. You see her being really responsible. But of course, this is a horror movie. And so something's going to happen. And it turns out that the house in which they are staying has some elements to it that nobody was really expecting. And those elements become even more complicated when the owner of the house shows up to kind of check on the property and discovers the uh, unexpected caverns below the house that he owns for himself. That's probably all people need to know if they don't want to have it spoiled. So thank you. Did you come out of this? Just tell me like relatively positive. Where were you, where are you at right now? I saw this on September 30th. Like it was really literally the kickoff to my spooky season. And I, I can't think of a more fun way to kick it off, honestly. The first maybe 30 to 45 minutes of this movie are real just like... You're waiting for the other shoe to drop and it's an extremely anxious experience. But once that dam breaks and everything just keeps going from there, it's just if you're if you're somebody who enjoys the genre, it is a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. How about you, Joe? Oh, yeah, I loved it. My only regret is that I saw it in a mostly empty theater and didn't get to mm. enjoy everybody else freaking out at the time. I'm sure it's a blast <laughs> to watch with a lot of people. But yeah, no, lots of fun. My theatrical experience, I was there with a friend and it was a Friday night and it was it was still fairly crowded considering the movie had been out for a few weeks. I looked over at one point and there was, I think, a high school aged boy who was there with his girlfriend and he was curled up in the tightest ball I have ever <laughs> seen. And it made me so happy. It was just like the the picture perfect experience of like what, what you want to see when somebody else is watching <laughs> a horror movie. It was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my 17-year-old daughter did see it the same day that I did. And so she came home, like at a different showing, and she burst mm. into my office right afterwards and said, what was that? So, <laughs> <laughs> so you got a taste. Yeah, I, had a, I saw it later on, thankfully not spoiled, but well after it had opened. So it was a smaller crowd as well. So I didn't get quite that reaction, Joe, from the folks around me. I found it to be, though, especially as you said, Abby, that opening section, a tense little thriller and tense in the social interactions as well. Even as you're suspicious of, of Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård, and initially on the side of Tess, who's played by Georgina Campbell, 
you also realize they're kind of dancing around the awkwardness of the situation. So there's a couple levels of tension at play, and I really did appreciate that. And then, of course, we do uh, get this twist, and I think for me, at its best, it's a bit of a stunt that forces you to reconsider the act and experience of storytelling. So uh, we can maybe shift to spoilers now and talk a little bit about that. Joe, you don't have to break down everything that happens because a lot happens, as Abby said. But maybe uh, as we move into spoilers now, she did mention these tunnels, maybe just bring us into kind of the initial reveal and then kind of the shift in perspective that Barbarian takes. And tell me, you know, tell me if these choices added to your experience of the movie or took away from it. Well, Keith is out doing his thing the, the, the next day after their initial interaction. Tess goes into the basement to look for something. She locks herself in. And while she's looking for a way out of the basement, she uncovers a hidden door that leads to a tunnel that leads to a room in which there is a light, a camera, and a gross mattress. And then while checking <laughs> that out, they discover another hidden room or another hidden tunnel behind that. How, how None much? of this is listed in the Airbnb no. description, by the way. <laughs> well, not initially, of course, but <laughs> yeah, it might be later. Part of the listing later on. We'll just say the two of them go down there and bad things happen to them. And that's when we cut to AJ, played by Justin Long, who is the the owner of the house, who is uh, needs to come back to from California because he's been accused of sexual assault and comes back to the house and starts investigating it. And he too finds the tunnels, which leads to all sorts of revelations. And maybe leave it right there. And what'd you think of that? Were you on board for all of these? Did it get out of control or were you just like hooked? Well, so first of all, I need to make clear, I have spent a lot part, a lot of my youth was spent in Michigan basements and <laughs> many of them had hidden rooms. I can think of three oh, right no. off the top of my head. This is a thing. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they weren't like that, but they had them and they were cool clubhouses. <laughs> so I'm already on board once we get that. <laughs> <laughs> But no, the the I mean the actual filmmaking is just outstanding. The way that mm. the way that it parcels out information, the way that the the camera plays with our relationship to the characters and the tunnels, you know, and, and we'll talk more about this later. But the way that it really pull, plays this this key moment where Tess is trying to decide if she's going to go look for Keith in the tunnels or run away, like we should. The way that it perfectly plays out this that moment. I mean, it's it's fun and goofy and over the top, but it's also really well constructed. And I think it just hits on all those levels. Yeah, I think I, what Joe has said, I, I agree with. I think there's also, there's a lot of perspective shifts that happen in this movie. There's a third one that we haven't yet discussed that when that happened, to me, like became my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> it's, there, there are just a lot of layers going on here. And I appreciate- Josh, as you were saying, the kind of the commitment to storytelling, it, it would be very easy to just make this a gimmick, right? To just make this a thing that's never really explained and like weird basement, weird things in the basement. We don't know how they got there. We just know they're bad and we want to get out. It wouldn't be great, but it would be enough. But the fact that there's more to it, that there's there's a whole world that we're going to explore, one that actually kind of gets into sort of the a little bit of the socioeconomics of the Detroit real estate system and why there are so many abandoned houses in certain parts of that that city, I think becomes even more, it, it just, it adds another layer. It adds another layer of thoughtfulness. It makes it a more interesting and more 
richly detailed experience and add some more context to the stuff that comes after. I love that first shift in perspective, as you describe it, Abby, when suddenly we are with Justin Log driving down a California freeway. We have no idea who this guy is in his convertible, why he's so happy singing. This is before he gets the news about the accusation. And it's the sort of thing where you wonder, you know, if they were still doing reels, like films had different reels, if the projectionist had put the wrong reel on and we were suddenly in the middle of another movie. So very bold. And then we bring AJ to this house and we start to make those connections. And it becomes very funny, Joe, this is where you were joking about it will be part of the Airbnb listing because we see his reaction to these tunnels. <laughs> He's looking for money. He wants to sell this house. He starts measuring them <laughs> to increase the square footage. And the length that the movie plays that gag out worked really well for me. And I think also just trying to figure out what was going on is where it got experimental. You know, now we're we are different that we know is pretty much what's in the tunnel, not entirely, but we know it's not good. And so we're no longer apprehensive in that way in trying to wonder what's going to happen, but it's more about when is it going to happen and how is it going to happen to this guy? And you've watched the same movie. It's almost like a choose your own adventure book from years past, you know, and suddenly we're on a different adventure in the, in the same setting. So I did like that. I think I started to fade a little earlier than the two of you, though, as we got these further developments. The way it struck me is almost as if the screenplay had been handed to somebody entirely new and they were told, give me five more pages, go wherever you want, give me five more pages. So it wasn't so jarring in that they completely invented new stuff, but there was a certain cohesion that was lacking. Even though I recognize those thematic things you're touching on, Abby, about, you know, white flight is a thematic threat, as you as you suggest. And also assault becomes something that's sort of a repeated theme. I don't know if I don't know if it seemed quite as cohesive for me as I would have liked, though, as it went on. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a missed opportunity to tie it together a little bit more. I do like the kind of difference shift between what we, the audience, know and what the characters on screen know, because at that point we have a little bit more context. And I think the context that we have is really sad and frightening. So what happens after that is both, like it's, it's a very strange mix of funny and sad and a balance that I think is really, really hard to pull off, but this movie manages to, just barely by the skin of its teeth. But yeah, I think it introduces just a lot of questions about who is a sympathetic character and how far are we willing to stretch that sympathy for people who we know are either in a difficult situation or people who have done objectively bad things but are having really bad things happen to them in return. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm gonna be the outlier here where I, I hear what you guys are saying and I agree with it mostly, but I'm, I'm kind of tired of of the horror movies where they're a little ashamed to be horror movies unless it's the monster is a clear metaphor and it's wagging the, you know, wagging the dog a little bit. So I kind of appreciated that the last the last third or so was just a monster movie and and I mean all of that stuff is still there that you're talking about, but it didn't bother me that they didn't that they didn't hit it over the head that this that you know monster equals white flight or or um male privilege or whatever that it, it kind of at the end was like no we've just got a big goofy monster movie and it goes kind of to extremes it becomes gross and weird and all of that sympathy stuff i think still hit for me i mean it is ultimately a you know man using that word intentionally man is the real monster sort of story but 
it never got into its way in its own way in a way that a lot of horror movies I've watched recently really are. So I'm all for the weirdness. I think that I, I want that <laughs> instead of a speech. Okay. <laughs> weirdness and grossness. It yes. delivers a lot of that. Does it, does it deliver much theologically to think about? I, or is this kind of a challenging one? I, I think for me, thinking about it this way, I wonder if applying a theological lens helps us to understand, I think one of you hinted at this, the very bad decisions these characters make in terms of, am I going to go down into this basement? Am I going to go through this false wall? Am I going to look into this room? Am I going to look into the tunnel? And the answer is always yes, even though most of us might say no very early on. They just can't resist doing all of these things. And there's actually a repeated visual motif about crossing thresholds that you notice the camera very early on moves from outside the house through the wall into it as Tess makes the decision to cross that threshold and enter, even before you know she knows anything. And so that is repeated when she we see her feet, I think, stepping into the dark hall in the basement, stepping into that room with the mattress, and then stepping down into the tunnel. So it made me wonder if there's something here about the allure of evil or the irresistibility of darkness, even when we know it could consume us. I, I think that does apply to Barbarian. I wonder if it also applies maybe to the allure of the horror genre in general. I mean, I'm here to defend it. That's the point of this show. But I'll admit the genre can also be exploitative and ugly. And that made me think, is there something sort of like the knowledge of good and evil at work here? This this idea that in, in the garden, Adam and Eve couldn't resist eating from the tree, right? What, what are they told by the serpent that eating from the tree would give them? If you look at Genesis 3, they're told, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so is there something like that that is drawing these people into the tunnels in Barbarian? And then maybe something similar that draws us to horror, among the other good reasons we could be drawn to horror. That's, yeah, I like I like that perspective. And I think it's, I think it's worth considering that through the lens of the different characters that go into the tunnel and the reasons they're going into the tunnel in, in Barbarian. So initially when Tess goes down there, it's it's out of necessity and trying to find a way out and then realizing that she needs to get out as soon as possible. Like she she's she's a fairly intelligent final girl for a horror movie, I think. Like she's the the movie makes it, it takes pains to show you that she is trying as hard as she can to make the right choices. But she also continually goes back into that tunnel, but it's never because she wants to. It's because she feels like she has to help other people, whether it's Keith or later AJ. Like she's going down there for the sake of other people. When AJ goes down into the tunnel the first time, he is going down there purely for his own selfish reasons. He's like, he's measuring things. He's like, he's trying to find extra square footage. And, and continues, like when he finds the second tunnel, gets even more excited when like the rest of us are just like, that's clearly like, even if, even if we didn't know something bad had happened down there, that's a bad idea. Like he is clearly not seeing all of the signs that Tess did earlier that just scream, get out of there. And he just keeps going because all he can see are like dollar signs, basically. He's, he's fully self-interested. And we see that throughout the rest of the movie too. He makes overtures about wanting to be a better person, about wanting to make selfless choices, and then almost immediately turning that right back around in terms of wanting, wanting self-preservation over all else. Whereas Tess is a much, she's, she's a selfless person in terms of just wanting to be really decent and care about other people. She puts herself in harm's way to protect other people, and she is rewarded by getting to survive the movie. Boy, I, you know, I like the argument, but 
I'm going to push on it a little bit this way because I think a lot of what the movie's doing is raising questions about our ability to know good and evil, right? I mean, I, I, I won't get too much into that third bit that we get, but we do get a flashback to the 80s that kind of describes the, um, the origin of the house, we'll say. When, when we see the neighborhood initially, it is a rundown, sketchy neighborhood, you know? And there's a key scene early on when Tess is trying to get into the house and a homeless man is running at her, shouting at her to get away from the house. And we're supposed to be terrified of that. And then late in the movie, we get this flashback to the 1980s that shows the same neighborhood, the same house, and it's shot very much as this is perfect suburbia, right? It's green lawns. We literally see a picket fence as it, the camera follows Richard Brake, uh, who you've seen as a monster in lots of horror movies. But right here, he's looking like a um, just a, a good neighbor, right? And you watch the camera sits behind him as he drives down the road and he's waving at neighbors, waving at kids. He goes to a supermarket, all this sort of stuff. And when he gets back from this trip, and I, I won't go into that part, but he's greeted by a neighbor who, I, and this I think is such a great line, who tells him that we're moving because this neighborhood is going to hell, right? And that's that's the phrase that he uses. And the, the neighbor and everybody else looks at Frank and they say he's he's one of the good ones, right? And we look at the, the homeless man, whose name is Andre, played by James Butler. He comes in later in the movie. We look at him as like a, a scary guy. And it does that sort of flip, which sounds trite, but the whole thing is kind of building towards how do you know and how, uh, you know, who do you trust? On the one hand, the movie, you could say the movie could be going for this whole, well, you got to trust what seems scary, except then that would totally undercut the first third, which is completely reasonable in, <laughs> you know, not trusting, you know, they even explicitly say it that, you know, Tess is like, if the situation was reversed and you came to this house late at night, there's no way I would let you in. And none of us would look at her and say, well, that's being selfish because of course she shouldn't. She's constantly under threat. So the, I think it's really canny with the way that it plays both how much we can know about what is good and what is evil, uh, how much is available to us. Well, and isn't that related to Joe to, you know, you referred to the monster that we eventually meet and even that figure yeah. is in a sense, a victim Absolutely. of the man who we thought was the, you know, the good guy in 80s suburbia. And so, yeah, that that uh, that definitely resonates with me that it's not so easy to put things in in those categories in this movie. And I think the same is true with when we meet AJ, too, when we first get the, the cut to him in the car, because he's like he's just along, you know, he's, he's a likable guy. And in things we want to like him and yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's singing along and he's, you know, he's a white man and he's singing along to this, you know, song in the car. It looks like he's having a good time. And then he gets that phone call and, you know, and he's been accused of sexual assault and we start to find out things about him and we're just like, Oh no, can I trust this guy? And I, I, I feel a little bit guilty with how long I was willing to go along with that plot and be like, well, maybe he's okay. Maybe, mm. maybe it's actually invented whole cloth who knows he seems like a nice guy until yeah. the scene where he gets drunk with his friend and is very clear about yeah. what happened and it's very obvious that he is the perpetrator and at that point like from that point on like you only want bad things to happen to him <laughs> um, that's a very yeah that's a very unsettling scene that long plays on his persona perfectly oh yeah i think that you're talking about there abby all right, there's a lot of choices, right, of new horror releases this time of year, but if you could still find Barbarian and you're up for the sort of things we talked about, yeah, I think we'd both encourage that you check it out. 
So Abby and Joe are going to stick around and we'll discuss a more straightforward horror film, I think. One that people tend to visit and revisit every October 1978's Halloween. For the break, here's a bit of Donovan's Ricky Ticky Tavi, which is actually the song Justin Long's character is singing when suddenly he drops into the movie. Josh Larson here, back with Abby Olchesi and Joe George. On this episode, we always like to pair a new release with a horror classic, and I think 1978's Halloween definitely has attained that status. It's a seminal slasher film. It's a key text in the sex-as-death subgenre. Mass killer Michael Myers, probably one of the most enduring movie monsters. Now, Joe, you've actually written about Halloween 4th and Christian. That was back in 2018. Can you set up the movie's plot and then remind us what your angle was in that piece? Yeah, the plot of the movie is pretty straightforward. It's about a man who named Michael Myers who killed his older sister when he was six years old. And 15 years later, he escapes from the hospital that's holding him and returns to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois. There he stumbles upon uh, Laurie Strode, a young babysitter played by uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and proceeds to stalk her throughout the neighborhood, killing off those who get in his way. And that's basically, oh, while also being pursued by Dr. Loomis, played by a crazed uh, uh, Donald Pleasance. Glad you didn't forget Dr. Loomis. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, my take on it, you know, four years ago, was that the, the central question of Halloween is is who is my neighbor? You know, and I kind of tied it into the uh, the Good Samaritan story, where repeatedly through that movie, there is not unlike Barbarian, these kind of questions about who is a trustworthy neighbor and who is not, just kind of serves as a reminder that Christians do not have the spirit of fear, and that allows us to love better, more boldly, uh, without having to fall back on that sort of security and safety and pushing out those from our neighborhoods who do not look like what we think is is an acceptable neighbor. Yeah, I loved it and um, helped me to appreciate Halloween, I think, even more. This is one I was, it was kind of a slow grow for me since I've seen it over the years and each time I do become a bigger fan. How about you, Abby? Have you been uh, a fan of this one from the start? Would it be among your among your favorites for horror films? Oh yeah, yeah. I have I have a very special love in my heart for for Halloween. Although, and and Joe, you may get mad at me for this. It is the only one in the series I have seen. So I have I have watched the original Halloween a lot, but I have not watched any of the sequels, and I know I need to. So. <laughs> There are 12 more to choose from as of tonight. I know. Wow. Wow. I'm sort of guilty of that too, Abby, with a lot of these franchises. Actually, although I have seen a handful, including a couple of the more recent Halloweens. But yeah, from what I have seen, the original is is the high point. Is that fair, Joe? Oh, yeah. Probably oh, an obvious let's statement. Let's not be crazy yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, yeah, it did take me a couple a couple of viewings, but definitely regarded as one of the classics now, especially, as I said, a slasher and sex as death 
touchstone. What I'm curious about, you know, in the context of, of this episode, having just had a good talk about Barbarian, is if you guys see any connections, Joe, you hinted at this a little bit, maybe some theological connections as well between Halloween and Barbarian. In uh, Fear Not, I write about slasher films. The angle I take is as an exploration of loneliness, the fear that slasher films explore our loneliness, how the victims in these movies are often left alone. And then I tie that into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was abandoned by his sleeping disciples. So I, just for me, the garden has always been the this really visually evocative place in the Bible. And so I ended up writing about the ways slasher movies can evoke this loneliness via the landscape. And so you mentioned, Joe, Haddonfield, Illinois, the empty suburban streets we see, just eerily, we know it's a full town. It's not like people have moved away. Um, the characters talk about it as if it's a bustling town, but almost always, and especially when Lori is walking through the neighborhood, she seems to be the only one, maybe one car in the background, or she'll pass a single neighbor. But there's a, there's a loneliness in the landscapes here. And we talked about this blighted neighborhood of Detroit where Barbarian is set. Now, Barbarian, not a slasher film, something, I don't know how you could categorize it really, but but the setting does evoke a spiritual loneliness to me that uh, was a, a connecting point between those two films. I don't know, how about you guys, thinking about these as a pair, any any Barbarian or Halloween connections that you saw? Yeah, I, I liked Joe's mention earlier. I was also thinking about this in terms of who who is my neighbor, what is a good neighbor, what is a bad neighbor. I, I know having listen to a few interviews um, and I can definitely recommend the uh, the Ringer podcast Halloween Unmasked that came out around the time of the the first new Halloween movies release. Was that with Amy Nicholson? Yes, and yeah, Amy Nicholson's that, podcast. It's that really helped me in my appreciation very much of, so too. of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how the origin of Michael Myers comes from John Carpenter's experiences growing up in Bowling Green, Kentucky as, a, as an outsider, as not a native Kentuckian and recognizing some of the out and out racism that existed within that community, within people who were otherwise just seemed like fully likable, kind, good neighbors, but also harbored this really strong capacity for hatred and evil, and how that eventually leads to the creation of a character that is nothing but evil plopped down in a otherwise kind of squeaky clean and safe-seeming community that there is, in fact, if you look a little bit, you know, a little bit closely, a little bit more closely at, at your neighborhood, at your friends and neighbors, you might not necessarily find out and out evil, but you will find you will find capacity for pain and you will find sin because all of us carry it. And kind of understanding how to live with that, how to survive that, what you can do in the face of that. And sometimes all you can do is just continue fighting it <laughs> every time it gets up. Um, I, I feel like Michael's unkillability is also a pretty good metaphor for that. I, I I think about that in terms of, often I think about it in terms of like projects I'm working on where like it just won't die. And I'm like, you have to go back and do revisions. You have to like call this person who you didn't think you were going to have to call. Like it's never done. But in fact, Sounds also, familiar. yeah, if you're, if you're, you know, working in like the fight for social justice, for example, it feels the same way a lot of the time where this thing that you are just, you're trying to make the world a better place and something always happens, something always comes back. It's never, ever done. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think it's also important to remember that horror movies are are also imaginary. You know, they part of what they're doing is, I mean, that's obvious, but part of what they're doing is is taking our fears and throwing them up on the screen. And there is sort of an 
an exorcism that happens, you know, where we can get our fears at their worst and their most grotesque, especially in the case of Barbarian, kind of get them out there and and face them, you know, and I don't think we're ever in good shape when we're looking at horror movies for answers, but it's useful to it's useful to think about why exactly this sort of thing scares us, you know, that 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 question about what, what where do we have the ability to decide what is good and what is evil. You know, in Halloween, Dr. Loomis you know, keeps telling us he has the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, you know, that's not a man, that's, uh, that, that's you know, just some killing machine. Yet when we first meet Michael, he is a six-year-old boy, right? You know, it's like you can't get more innocent than a little boy in a Halloween costume standing on the front lawn of his uh, suburban house. That's what we picture. The movie constantly reminds us that we we can't know, we can't know, we can't know, and that's good for scaring us and barbarian does the same thing i think as christians we need to answer back to that that we it's not our job necessarily to know we don't have a spirit of fear we have spirit driven by love and grace and forgiveness and and not even death it can 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 hold us now i i don't think that i mean i think the the image that we get at the start of barbarian again is is well told and that doesn't mean that we be reckless or <laughs> not recognize real world threats that exist but it does mean that we have the capacity, we don't even have the capacity, we have the ability and the charge to do good works and a lot of a lot of harm that's been done, especially in the name of Christ, has come out of fear towards various neighbors. And that we don't live in Haddonfeld. <laughs> we don't live in Barbarians, Detroit. Those are ex- ex- exaggerations and grotesques that we can respond to. Is that unfounded fear, Joe, represented really well? And I I forget if you write about this in your Think Christian piece on Halloween, or maybe it's something actually, Abby, you you mentioned in one of our emails, but that scene of Jamie Lee Curtis fleeing Michael Myers to a neighbor's house, and they have locked their doors, and they are not going to help her. And so here it's, it's this instance of that's absolutely clearly, you know, the right thing to do. But this person behind their closed safe doors does not want to even explore what is happening at, you know, at great risk to the Jamie Lee Curtis character. Is that, I forget if that was in your piece or not. Uh, yeah, I talked about it a bit there. I think that's the scariest part of the movie. Yeah, where she's she's running from the, the bracket house where she was at to other houses. And she's in, again, a suburban neighborhood. So there are houses all over. And there's a fantastic scene where she goes and pounds on the door. The light turns on. You see somebody peek through the window. They see this hysterical yeah. woman pounding. The light goes off and she runs again. All while that great John Carpenter score is, you know, tightening the tension and you just see Michael walking across. It's it's, you know, it's a cliche to say, you know, man is the real monster, but that's a perfect example of that. It's one thing to be haunted by the boogeyman. It's another thing to be, you know, to not, to be alone, as you say. And that's such a perfect image of loneliness. Yeah. The use of the light there. I'd forgotten that is what's so great yeah. where there, it, it is a full on rejection, yep. right? They see and don't want any part of it. Well, I'm glad we could revisit that piece. Again, uh, listeners, you can find it if you haven't read it over at thinkchristian.net. Thanks for that, Joe, and for being on this episode. You as well, Abby. I know you guys are both very busy with other projects, as Abby described. In fact, I, I understand there are book updates you both might be able to share. Joe, you've got a release date for the superpowers I and do. the glory? Yeah. February of 2023. I think February 7th. I didn't write that down, but February 2023. 
is when it'll all right february yes that'll be here sooner than you think so i'm excited for that and abby very excited. Just heard a week or two ago that you have a new book project. I do. I am working with University Press on a book of movies to watch through the liturgical year, which may sound familiar. It's it's based on my article series that, that I wrote for Think Christian between, I think, 2020 and 2021, maybe. Sounds right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, it's an expansion of that with some longer essays and some other parts of the liturgical calendar that we haven't covered yet in addition to the ones that we have. So if you want a taste of that, you can read that article series and kind of get a sense of what's to come. Yeah, I know that's something you were mulling over since you started writing those. So I'm really glad to see that it's come to fruition here. I'm excited to see those both come out, those books. So until then, I hope you two have a happy Halloween. All right. Thanks. Happy Halloween, Josh. iconic horror score? Surely it's in the running. A bit of John Carpenter's composition for his own movie, Halloween, there. As you can tell, I could keep talking horror, but we're going to have to leave it there. I'm going to leave you with a sneak peek at my forthcoming book, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror. I wrote this in the introduction. Horror takes us to a place of surrender, where what some consider to be the platitudes of Christianese suddenly have real power, because we have no other choice. In horror, there is humility. And in our humility, the good news of the gospel offers true comfort because it arrives from completely outside of ourselves, despite ourselves. Again, Fear Not will not be published until fall of 2023. But if you want to get email updates until then, you can sign up for those at fuller.edu slash fear not. Thanks to Abby Chessy and Joe George for indulging my horror whims on this episode. You can connect with both of them on Twitter. Abby is at Abby Olchesi, and Joe is at J.A. George I.I. We're on Twitter, too, of course, as well as Facebook. Find us at Think Christian. And for those of you who might not know this, you can find video versions of this podcast as well as other video content from Think Christian on our YouTube channel. So just search for Think Christian on YouTube. Speaking of horror, I've got a video essay there on Jordan Peele's Us and Jeremiah 11.11, so you can check that out. A quick favor before I sign off, we could still use some fresh reviews over at Apple Podcasts, so if you could take about 30 seconds, leave us a rating, even better would be a couple of comments. That way, we can get a better profile on the platform and hopefully reach some new listeners. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassley. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture family connects with our faith. 